when you're down and trouble and you need some love and care and nothing well nothing is going right close your eyes and think of me and soon I will be I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studio, home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowler's Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show is regularly scheduled at the same time each week. PBA Hall of Famer Len Nicholson started the show in 2002. Since then, he's recorded over 1,100 shows featuring over 400 different guests, a literal who's who in bowling. So, Phantom fans, let's welcome our host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Cagle Company. Well, Phantom fans, this is part two of us paying tribute to the great Earl Anthony. Last week, we talked a little bit about what Earl taught Bill over the years. And now Bill is back with us again tell us more. And those of you that follow our show know that Bill is with us often and you know his impressive bio by now. He's a world-class ball driller, a world-class ball designer, and one of the top coaches in the entire world. So Bill, what do you want to talk about this week, Bards? Hey, Blue. Um, you know, I think what we want to do is talk about how the talents of Mr. Anthony and people just don't really understand or realize how versatile he was. Uh, so I think we need to get into the construction of his game, how he manipulated his game. It was something that unless you knew exactly what to look for, you wouldn't see it. He was that good at it. But just before we start, I want to add one thing. Okay. I still remember his specs. His specs were four and a half by four and five eighths, quarter reverse on the thumb, inch and three thirty seconds thumb hole, fingers were 31, 31, half left, half right, no front to back. I don't know what size grips he used. And his axis point was five and three eighths over and a quarter up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you sounds like you could do that in the dark. Um, I still remember quite a few of the specs from when I was on tour and uh, and drilling. It's just something because it became almost like rote, where you you know you saw it so much that it became almost photographic in your mind. And there's still quite a few of them that I remember. And as a side note, I still remember Mike Albies, and but the only he had a much shorter span. We can talk about that at different times. But his axis point was uh, five and a quarter over and three eighths up. So they had a lot of similarities. Wow. Well, I got to tell you, you know, I've only drilled maybe less than, I don't know, 90 balls in my life. I was always fortunate to be around uh, like Sam Baca, who was a great ball driller, and then you guys out in the truck. Uh, so I never had to worry about drilling balls. But I did check a lot of balls in, thousands and thousands of them in the weigh-in line. And the thing I remember the most about Earl's ball was a track. It was about maybe a quarter inch wide, whereas a lot of guys, it was a half inch wide. 
some guys even had a one-inch wide ball track. His was, I, I couldn't hardly see it sometimes. Unbelievable. It was a quarter, you know, uh, there's an impact area on a bowling ball. That's what I call it. And most people, the ball will land somewhere on the lane bed, somewhere right around the thumb, and that would be the widest point of a track. His didn't have one. <laughs> it was a quarter of an inch. And you're, I mean, the width of a pencil at very, very most, that's how precise he was. And I think that, you know, people are going to say, well, you know, he was left-handed because I hate when they say stuff like that. The guy was literally a genius. And I'll go, I'll say this one more time. I don't know if anybody taught him. He never discussed that with me. But one thing that people don't know is he had multiple games. He had multiple ways of throwing a bowling ball. Well, just say, as an I was going to say, I was just going to remark the same thing, man. He was unbelievable. If he didn't have a shot, he found one, you know, in the practice session. He'd go down there with a couple of balls and bowl a couple frames on each lane that he started out. Then he'd skip the amount of pairs that they were going to skip. He would usually find somewhere to play and never just stand there for half an hour like a lot of guys. He knew they'd be a little different tomorrow, but he was always prepared. He knew the boundaries and the parameters of his shot. And if he didn't have one shot here, he had another shot there. So you're right. He was amazing. You know, and when you look at his physical game, I mean, I'm sure there was more than what he told me because I'm sure, you know, he's only going to tell me what I need to know, not everything he knows. Um, he had three, this is just a basic outline. He had three arm swings. We'll get into that in a little bit. He had three walk patterns. He had three different types of hand motions. That's what he called it a release. I called it hand motions. And he had multiple grip pressures. He was a master at each and every one of them. I know. You know, this is like, Talking about Babe Ruth, when I talked to my grandfather, you know, he never could do anything wrong, and everything he did was unbelievable. It's true. And they even came up with a phrase that is Ruthian. Some of the things that the Babe did, well, everything that Earl did on the lane was also Ruthian. Unbelievable. He said, like he said to me one time, he says, look, if I can control the angle of my swing, it helps tell my hand what I want to do. I mean, at first, that just kind of like, well, I have no idea what you're talking about, but we'll get to that point, I'm sure, someday. And then when you got to notice and really, you know, listen to his outlines, again, he didn't tell me directly. He wanted me to figure it out. Um, but he had three different types of bent elbows. When he wanted to go straighter and slow down the revs and uh, not have the ball grab the lane early so he could play a certain zone, he would actually straighten the elbow out more. When he wanted his normal release, it was what I call the banana elbow, where it was only not really bent, but just like the shape of a banana. <laughs> and then when he really wanted to rev it, what he would do is his, he would add elbow bend to it so he could, it would make it easier to get his hand to the bottom equator of the ball. So really, with those swings, he was manipulating. People don't really understand this. There's three equators to a bowling ball. There's the bottom equator. That's where you can get the maximum revs. The middle equator, 
that's where you can kind of retard the revs. And then there's the top equator where you are literally just taking as much off of the ball as possible. It took me a long time to understand when he was talking about hand angles and stuff like that, because he was talking about actually the equator of the ball. I took his words literally. And so it took me a long time to figure out that he's using his elbow to put his hand in a different position on the equator of the ball. And that's something that I think now is almost a lost art. It's a lost art for most, and it's an art that some of them never found. I mean, just unbelievable. You know, you talk about fractions and, and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and like a ring in 10 for a right-hander. You know, it's usually about a 64th of an inch between the time the sixth pin wraps around the neck. And the same thing with a solid seven. You know what? I never saw Earl leave two or three in a row. If he left a solid seven, he knew he had to make an adjustment. And there were finite adjustments less than a 64th of an inch with a grip pressures like you talk about. He was amazing. It's, it's, it's actually, I mean, I, I cannot tell anybody how honored I was. I mean, why he allowed me to learn from him, I don't know. I, I, I was too afraid to ask. Well, <laughs> um, you know, he, he recognized that you were a student of the game and he wanted to pass something along to those, you know, that are coming up. And, and I'm sure you do the same thing. You give thousands of lessons and there's only a handful of kids or, or students that really grasp everything you're teaching them. And then they'll be down there the next day teaching them what you told them. Other ones figure, oh, it's gonna just happen, you know, and they never work on it probably the way you want them to. But that's the way Earl was. He wanted to pass this along. And he chose you, Pards. Congratulations. Uh, it's, you know, it's like when he was talking to me about um, walk patterns, he had three different walk patterns. And I'm sure that doesn't include foot speeds and stuff like that. We're talking about direction of the walk. When he wanted to kill it and tug it up the pocket, up to, more towards the pocket, he would walk towards his target and he would have the straightest elbow possible for him. So he'd hit the top equator of the ball. So the ball would not make a big motion on the back. So when he hit what he considered a trash pair or a pair that, you know, I got to grind out 190, 200 instead of trying to shoot 230 because he was intelligent that way. He knew that there were some pairs, what he, he called lane shape, which we now call topography. He already knew that stuff. I Again, I don't know where he got it, but when he wanted to tug the ball, he would literally walk towards the target. So that way the mistake would be to shut the body down and he'd hit the top of the ball even more and now the ball just wouldn't rev, so he would create his own hold, which a lot of times on the left side at that time in, on tour, there was no hold. <laughs> there was, there was, they gave you a little swing, but they were not gonna give you that hold, so he had that ability to create hold. When he wanted to get up the lane and just get to a medium rev pattern, he had a straighter walk pattern, and then what I would call his standard uh, elbow bend. So then he would control that to make sure that if he missed, it was more up the lane, which he hardly ever missed. <laughs> Let's yeah, you, go. You, know, um, you mentioned that word left-hander, you know, that's been something going on now for 40 or 50 years. Uh, lefties this, lefties that. 
you know, Earl, I don't know exactly how many tournaments he won with only being the only lefty in the field. But uh, one time I was walking down the concourse and I saw about seven or eight lefties all talking. And so I, I ambled by and I stuck my ear in there and they were talking seriously about all getting together and putting up about 200 bucks a man to give it to Earl to stay home. <laughs> it never eventuated, but there was some talk about it. You know, he was just that dangerous. And that's why to me, he will, uh, I, I just will always consider him the greatest of all time because his knowledge of the game has been passed on. So, and I'm going to bring up a player in a little bit who's actually taken some of that knowledge and added it to his game, but he's on the right side of the lane. And then when you get to the final walk pattern, that's when Earl really wanted to get the ball to make a motion on the back end. In other words, he knew he had a little misroom left and he had a little bit of misroom right. But for him, misroom was, you know, if I miss a board left, okay, and, and I can get it to react, and if I can miss a board right and get it to react, well, that's when he would go to his third walk pattern. His third walk pattern was walking left to right, not a big amount, but it was a small, it was a big enough amount that by the time he got to the foul line, the angle of his body would be slightly more open, so that would get his hand more to the inside quadrant of the bowling ball. So he did it not only with, you know, people talk about hand positions, actually body position is much more important. Your body can position the angle of your hand to rotate a ball a certain way. But he would do that and then add a more bent elbow so that he would hit the bottom equator of the ball. This is what he did for uh, many years. And, he, you know, there's stories out there that he could, add one rev, retarded a half a rev, increase it a half a rev. That people may consider those stories. I believe he could actually do it. <laughs> he could. You know, I was out there, including the regional tour, about 800 tournaments, and I had a lot of time to ask a lot of questions, and not to mention uh, the million questions that the bowlers asked me. But, you know, I would ask the bowlers every once in a while, you know, What's the ball supposed to do? And every one of them knew, basically, it was supposed to skid, hook, and roll, and whatever. And I'd go to some guys, and I'd say, what's the most important part of that? Oh, the hook, you know, okay. And I'd ask another guy, what's the most important part? Oh, the roll. you got to get that roll in the right, uh, right distance down the lane. Earl was the only guy that told me the most important part was a skid. You know, unbelievable, and it's true. To keep the speed of the ball high so it doesn't deflect and, and to you know retard the amount of hook and roll, which was the hardest part to control. And once he knew the control of the skid line, it was lights out. Unreal. We're looking at a different era now, for just for a brief moment. We're looking at approximately three quarters of an ounce of oil per lane bed in today's time. So the skid yeah. is kind of thin. We only had we only have multiple surfaces now compared to back then. We were looking at maybe just under a quarter of an ounce of oil per lane bed back in that time. So yeah, the main thing you had to do was control the front part of the lane, and that's where he would add grip pressures. He would lighten up the grip 
pressure. He would grab it a little bit more. When people say he didn't squeeze it, he squeezed it properly to where you couldn't see it. <laughs> so he squeezed it in a way like, you know, uh, one that I teach right now, and I call it the fastball. When you look at Earl's setup, he didn't change the position of his hand. I've, I've got enough film of him. He's not holding it. Um, he basically set his hand the same, but as I mentioned in the last, when I said, I don't see what you're doing different. And he said, can you see inside of the ball? And I said, no. So he would like take what I call a fastball. He would hold the ball more in the balance of his index finger and his middle finger. That would freeze his wrist. So the ball would skid off of his hand a lot longer. So when the front part of the lane started to break down, he would go to that release. And of course, whatever walk pattern, I mean, his combinations, I'm gonna figure there was about uh, maybe 50 of them, um, but he mastered all of them. And that's one thing that is really, I'm gonna say it again, a lost art. Those players, or that player in particular, Mr. Anthony, he would make a ball rev at a point when you would think, okay, well, it should it should hang, and it wouldn't. And then you'd look at one and go, well, that one should jump off the back end a little bit, and he wouldn't. But he did <laughs> a lot of that with his hand pressures. I'm sure you know. I'm sure he had to drive the lane men nuts. <laughs> Not really. I'll tell you what. Uh... There was a lot of complaining going on back in the day, and the, the righties were always complaining about the lefties. When the lefties started complaining about the lefties, who was Earl, I knew everything was okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, how many tournaments, I, I don't even know, that he ran away from the field when the right-handers, it was dominated by right-handers, but he ran away from the fields. How many times did that happen? Yeah, I mean, we got we got to look that up. Yeah, when I mean, people, he was a master. I mean, you can't look at it any other way. And that's just the way I see it. And I'm again, I'm very grateful to, to the Anthony family for being so kind to me and sending me films. And I'm still in touch with Mike Anthony uh, from time to time. But when I look at a design of a physical game that is not robotic, I know people call them the human robot and stuff. When you watched him, he flowed like all the all the greats. The feet look like they're walking on clouds. Yeah. That's the, the sign of great players. Even today, when they look like they're stomping, um, you know that more flaws are going to show up. But when he wanted to his, throw his normal roll, what I learned was it looked like he was hanging on with all four fingers, like a monkey <laughs> on a bar. <laughs> so that was... That was his home standard ball roll. You know, I would ask him how much pressure and stuff like that, but he would never answer that. <laughs> but, you know, I guess that, that comes down to the physical build of what somebody thinks is strong and what somebody thinks is lighter, you know, because I know I hold the ball fairly firm for my size because I'm just not that strong. But, you know, his ability of controlling all of that and matching all of that up has yet to be surpassed in my opinion yeah for sure listen Barnes, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about earl that's why we've scheduled three shows and uh, we got you scheduled again for next week but 
I don't want to surprise you at the last second here, but we got about five minutes left in this show. And I know you always got a lot of things you want to put in there. So what else you got before we have to close? One player that stands out right now, and I'm sure I want to get bashed for this one, but I don't really care. One thing we mentioned earlier that uh, Mr. Anthony had three different walk patterns. If you watch Jason Belmonte, he has three different walk patterns. Wow. When he trains straighter, his first step is straighter. When he's playing in between, his first step is slightly left, slightly more left. And when you, he's getting in and around the ball return, his first step is r roughly seven boards left. Yeah, so, people, don't, people don't notice that unless you got an eyeball for it, and obviously you do. So go ahead. But he would, you know, you watch that. So he's picked up on part of it. I don't know if he learned it on his own, studied the films or anything. But when people say, I'm working on my walk, well, you, you better have more than one because you're going to have to play different parts of the lane. <laughs> and each walk pattern requires a different part of the lane so that you can attack that part of the lane and when you make a mistake it's to the more forgiving part of the lane instead of the brutalizing part of the lane where you can't get away with anything well he's well practiced and i'm sure he has a plan uh, that way that's one of the reasons why he has come on with like such a sensation that he is so a lot of people that knock him don't realize how much he's put into his game He's pretty awesome. He's uh, He's got an ability, he's got knowledge, and he has the most important thing, desire. Yeah, what a big word that is, huh? It's one that, you know, if you, if you really want to get to the top, you better have the desire to put the extra time in. You better have the desire to commit to it, and you better have the desire to believe in what you're committing to. Yeah, I mean, just one thing that's very obvious, uh, a lot of guys on the tour, at least back in the day, you know, they'd, they'd bowl two or three events and go home because they got homesick and they had to go home and get their wives straightened out and get their life back in order. You got to figure that this guy, he would commute from Australia. Now, that takes a lot of desire to do and stay away from his family for a long time. But uh, I'll tell you what. The desire is a big word, man. Uh, I love it. It's a huge word, and it's something that I won't say is lost, but I will say it is diminishing. Yep, unfortunately, I, I agree, Parge. But listen, I'm looking at the old clock in the wall. Unbelievable, Parge, how the time flies in this show. And I know you got a lot more, but uh, basically, what do you got lined up for us next week? You got something else? I want to tell you what I believe Earl Anthony's secret was on lane play and strategies. Oh, man, I can't wait for that one. And we record this about a week before the tournament, so before the before the show. So I'm going to be looking forward to that one, Pards. And you know what? These three shows is never going to be the end of me and you talking about Earl because there's so much more, Pards. But the old clock on the wall does tell me we're out of time, and I can't believe how quickly the time flies in this show. And it's probably why they say it's the fastest show in all of sports. But we look forward to talking to you again next week, Billy. And we appreciate all that you do for the great sport of bowling. And also, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Brad Edelman from the High Rollers and Storm Bowling, for their continued sponsorship of our show. Also, 
a shout out to our newest sponsor, Dave Kowalski, who's with Auto Value and Bumper to Bumper Auto Parts Stores. He's also the past president of the Michigan Bowling Coaches Association. So, Bill, you got something to say as we close the show? Listen very carefully to the information that was in this show because hopefully it opens your mind that there isn't just one way to throw a bowling ball. If you really want to reach the top, you better learn multiple ways. It's not just depending on a, being dependent on equipment and oil patterns. It's being dependent on your own abilities. Well said, Barnes. I'll talk to you next week. So for Phantom Radio, this is the Phantom. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing Oh, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me And soon I will be 